0: And before we go to the Lord uh, to hear from his word, let us join again in prayer and seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Your paths. You would lead us in your truth and teach us. O Lord, you are the God of our salvation, and we wait for you all the day long, and so we pray that you would lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble his way, that your secret counsel would be for those who fear you. You would make known to us your covenant love in Jesus Christ. Help us to hear of him as he declares himself to us and to his church universal, that all those would hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Help us to be attentive to this, your word. Give us hearts to believe and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Revelation, of course, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word may he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, in my childhood bedroom, I had a decoration that was special to me. It wasn't very large, it wasn't very unique or, or very impressive, but it was special. It was a wooden parrot, a bird carved and painted, and it was perched on a wooden ring, and it hung from a bamboo chain, and, uh, and I got it when I was eight years old. It was my only souvenir from a family vacation to Disney. I've never been much into trinkets, decorations. I don't don't get attached to stuff all that easily, but I was attached to that bird. That bird stayed in my room well after such things should have been forgotten, well after it should have been put in a box and in the attic and forgotten somewhere, it stayed, it persisted. And I suppose if we wanted to get psychological this morning, the bird represented a memory, I don't know, a memory more than just a decoration. The summer after that family vacation, my parents divorced. And so perhaps, I don't know, perhaps that bird to me represented the memory of of a better time or the the hope of something better. I don't know what it represented, but there was some sort of significance to this little uh, wooden decoration, some significance to me that it wouldn't have had to anybody else. It would have just been some insignificant thing to anybody else. And you know how it goes. Because you've got some something somewhere in your house, that is special to you, even though it's not very valuable. And it represents for you a person, or a memory, or a hope. That's how we work. As people, we take uh, intangible ideas and memories, and we connect them to physical objects. And when those objects come from a gift shop, we call them souvenirs, souvenirs. If they're passed down through our family, we call them heirlooms, and if we set them in public places, we call them memorials. This is what we do. They are our tangible reminders of what is important to us, and we cherish them, and we protect them, and we would not part with them, and it doesn't matter how how insignificant or or maybe uh, how, uh, how inexpensive they are. And the church has reminders, too. The church has memorials. There are Uh, our Ebenezer's, our rocks of remembrance. There are the sacraments, the table that we'll come to today, signs and seals and tangible reminders of promises that we can't yet wrap our hands around, and yet we have these reminders. I wonder if you've considered the fact that God also has a memorial. Of course, the Lord doesn't need to be reminded. He does not need his memory to be jogged to remember what is important, but God has a memorial nonetheless, and it is for him something like a trophy. The spoil of his victory, the declaration that he is the conqueror. And God's memorial is not large, and it is not significant by the way that the world uh, would judge such things, but the Lord has put his memorial on display for everyone to see. And God's memorial, his reminder, is his church. His monument to his victory. Because the church is His, because the church represents His victory, it is His permanent and protected witness in the world. And many may look at the church and say, It's insignificant, it's, it's a cheap thing that we could do without, but the Lord says, I will not part with my church. The church is mine. The church declares something about who I am and what I have done. The church of Jesus Christ is Jesus' memorial. That's the message that we'll find today to Philadelphia and the message that we have here in Concord. That Jesus Christ has made the church his lasting memorial. We're going to hear that as we hear the Lord speak to Philadelphia and speak to this church of of things like permanence and protection and witness. Those, by the way, if you're taking notes, are your three points. Permanence And protection and witness to show that the Lord has a memorial in the world and a memorial in eternity. And it is the church of Jesus Christ. So he speaks first to Philadelphia of the permanence of his church. Now permanence really is the heart and soul of this message. It is at the beginning and it is at the end. He starts by saying, behold, I have set a door for you that is open and no one can shut. Here is your stance Here is where you are with me. You are open and my door is open to you and no one can change that. There is the permanence that you have in my kingdom, he says. And then he ends by saying that all of my conquerors will be made pillars. Pillars that never move. Pillars that stay right where I am, in my presence. The Lord speaks to Philadelphia and says, you have a permanence in my kingdom. And this letter, like the letter to Smyrna, is full of nothing but encouragement from the Lord. These are the two of the seven churches that receive no rebuke. They receive only the Lord's praise, only the Lord's kindness, only the Lord's uh, mercy and encouragement, and he speaks to them primarily of the permanence they have in his kingdom. Now, despite all of the praise and encouragement coming from the Lord, I bet you could imagine the anxiety almost. The Church of Philadelphia, as as this letter comes to them, as they wait to hear what the Lord has to say about them and their church. It's an interesting feature of these seven churches and these seven letters that are written, is that they they follow uh, a route uh, through Asia Minor, almost a, a postal route, so that one letter carrier could begin at Ephesus and end at Laodicea and go to each one in an arc that stretches up the coast and then inland and then southward, and he'd never have to backtrack. And each letter ends with the plural, let him uh, who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church is, plural. And so we can imagine that as the letter carrier comes and takes this revelation of the Lord to John, his apostle, to each of the churches, that by the time he gets to Philadelphia, they have heard of the Lord's evaluation of five other churches. They have heard of lovelessness and of tribulation. They have heard of compromise and a dead reputation. And now the messenger says, "To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And doubtless the question in their hearts is, what will the Lord say to us? What does the Lord see in us? How will the Lord evaluate us? And I wonder, as you've heard these six now letters read, if you've asked yourself the same question, what will the Lord say to his church in Concord? What would he see in us? How would he evaluate our church? And I pray that he would speak to us the way that he speaks to Philadelphia because he tells them, as he speaks of permanence, he tells them of two realities, two truths, and these truths are so intertwined that it's hard to untwist them. He begins by telling them about their works, And then he interrupts himself to tell them about his own works before he comes back to telling them about their works. And and they're so interconnected, we cannot separate them. What does the Lord tell them? Well, first he praises them for their faithfulness in the world. I know your works, he says. And even though you are small, even though by all worldly accounting... You're not very impressive. You're maybe not very big. You don't have any social clout. You are small, and yet you are steadfast, he says. You are permanent and immovable. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name in the culture where you live. To Philadelphia, he says, you are faithful in the world. You are witnesses who point to Jesus with hands and lives and voices that refuse to be silenced. He says, you are faithful in the world, but he interjects before he gets all the way there, and he says, I want to assure you that you have a permanence in my kingdom. That's what it means when the Lord says, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. If you were to turn back to the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, the Lord says, I am the door. I am the gate, the narrow passageway through which my sheep enter and come into eternal life. And look down just a little bit farther. There's another open door in Revelation in chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. What is the door the Lord has set before His church? It is a permanent place, an entryway into the throne room of God. The open door that the Lord is speaking of is the new and the living way that he has opened through his flesh and through his sacrifice for his people to come before the Lord into the Holy of Holies where he dwells. And he says, I have set this before you, my faithful church, steadfast in the world, and yet you have a permanence in my kingdom. There is a door open and no one can shut it in your face. And These two ideas are so mixed and so intertwined that it's hard to separate. Even grammatically, the scholars go back and forth, and maybe you have a translation that differs in some of the wording here, and that's because uh, in sort of a rare stretch in these early chapters in Revelation, the grammar is a little bit convoluted, and we try to untangle them, and we can't, and we shouldn't. That's because the most glorious thing about a church that is faithful to the Lord here and now in the world The most praiseworthy thing about a church that holds fast to the name of Jesus Christ is the way that that church becomes a visible representation of their permanence in the kingdom of God by his own power. This is what he continues to tell them. He says that your permanence is is not of your own power. In fact, you have little power, he says at the end of verse 8. You are of little power, but he said of himself in verse 7 that I am the one who has the key of David and I open and no one shuts, and I shut and no one can open. And he's speaking about himself and the power that he has to make his people steadfast in the world and permanent in the kingdom. This is a quote, really, in, in verse 7. This is a picture from Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, the Lord was removing a man who had a high position in the kingdom. He was something like the vice-regent or the cupbearer. Imagine Joseph as the second in command of Egypt, but now in Judah, there was a man named Shebna, and the Lord was saying, I am removing Shebna, and I'm going to establish Eliakim. The Lord said there, and I will put on his shoulder the key of David, and he will open, and no one will shut, and he will shut, and no one will open. And the point is that Eliakim was to be uh, the kingdom representative, the one with all of the bargaining power between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Assyria. And he had the full authority of the house of David to open and to shut, to bind and to loose. And Jesus is applying this prophecy to himself. He says, I'm the ruler. I'm the one who admits to the kingdom of my God those whom I will. And if I have opened a door to you, no one can shut it. And he speaks to them of permanence, and their permanence and their stability rests in his power and authority. So perhaps he's telling us today as he was telling the Philadelphians. Are you faithful in the Lord? Are you standing fast in the society? Are you part of a church that proclaims faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't pat yourselves on the back, but praise the Lord who opens the door that no one can shut. This is the most wonderful thing about a faithful church. The faithful church on earth is just a picture a representation, becomes a tangible, visible monument to God's heavenly hold on his people. Now, I bet that the believers in Philadelphia needed to hear that, because like a lot of the other churches that we have read and we have discovered in these last weeks, the story behind Philadelphia was a story of persecution and tribulation and hardship for the believers there. You notice that Jesus goes on in verse 9 to speak of the synagogue of Satan. Those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. You remember that language. We've heard it, again, somewhere else. And it was in Smyrna, the other church who received no rebuke from the Lord. So it's not a stretch to imagine that the same thing was happening in Philadelphia that was happening in Smyrna. That is, that the ethnic Jews, those who prided themselves on their national heritage and yet did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ethnic Jews, were accusing the Christians, accusing them of putting their faith in a false messiah and a false savior and saying that whatever you have in your little Christian way, your little religion that you've invented, it's not true. And what is the standard response in the first century Jewish world to someone who follows a false messiah? It is excommunication. It was happening already. Before Jesus had been crucified, before he was resurrected, the Jews had already decided that anyone who pressed that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They would be removed from the life of the community. The door of the community and the synagogue would be shut in their face. And that closed door was a sign to believers in Jesus Christ coming from the Jews saying you have no part And the people or the kingdom of God. Our door is shut to you. And Jesus says, oh, but my door is open. Do not worry about those who threaten. Do not listen to those who accuse. Do not believe and be persuaded by those who would persecute you and would lure you away to deny me He's telling them, you're faithful, and you're faithful because my door is open to you. And for the faithful church, they have a permanent place in the kingdom of God, and the people in Philadelphia needed to hear that, and maybe you need to hear the same thing. In our country, there are very few literal doors that are shut to people simply because they're a believer in Jesus Christ. It happens sometimes. It happens. Jobs or opportunities And and maybe it's on the rise in a societal way, but so far, uh, the excommunication, so far the pressure and, and the closed doors happen in our relationships and in our social standing. This is what happens when our kids go off to college and they're reminded that if you want to be a faithful, especially if you want to be a faithful vocal follower of Jesus, you will be an outsider. If you want to profess faith in Jesus Christ, We will have nothing to do with you. And it is that persistent voice that lures so many young people, especially in their first taste of freedom, away from the church and away from Jesus Christ. And it doesn't always start with some intellectual rejection of the gospel. We like to think that it does and simply, oh, they went away and they learned science or some other thing, but it happens relationally. And there are people that I want to be with and there are friends that I want to hang out with and and they think that I'm strange and I'm made an outsider. And their doors are shut to me so long as I cling to Christ. This is the same temptation, by the way, for the retirees among us. For those who are grandparents. Grandparents. For those who are older and you have kids who are now grown and their kids are now getting older and they need advice and they're stuck somewhere in some dead-end portion of their life because of the bad choices they've made and they come to you and they need wisdom. And what do you tell them? Do you speak of Jesus? Do you speak of the need of grace and forgiveness? Do you speak of godly wisdom in the world that begins with the fear of the Lord? And if you do, what will they think of you? She's old-fashioned. He's overbearing. He wants to run my life and tell me not only what to do, but what to believe. And will they shut the door in your face? Will they be closed off when you go to family gatherings? It's the same temptation. It is the same temptation that comes against churches. And we are tempted to downplay the doctrines of sin and repentance and the necessity of Christ because if we want to have a voice in the world, we've got to play nice with the world's systems. And if you talk about such things, if you proclaim such things, especially if it happens anywhere outside of your own private little meeting, then you are a hateful bigot. You are an extremist, and you ought not to have a voice in the world. And so we're tempted with closed doors, but the Lord says to His church, don't you worry about that. You hold fast to me. You be faithful to me because I have opened a door to you and no one can shut it. And there is a permanence for Christ's faithful church in his kingdom. Well, that's our main point. Uh, And the two that come next are are a bit of a a subset point of them. He speaks second uh, to his church of protection. He speaks to them of permanence and he speaks to them of protection. You find this in verse 10. The Lord says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus is saying, I will keep you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. What a wonderful praise for a church. It is small in the eyes of the world, even though they are uh, small in the eyes of the world, even though they have been rejected and discarded by the society, yet they are holding fast. They are already patiently enduring tribulation for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, "I always protect and preserve those who wait upon me." This ought to be a reminder to us, folks. a reminder. That the safest course of action in the face of any kind of affliction is always to maintain faithfulness to Jesus Christ. How will the church get ahead in the world? How will the church succeed? If we can even apply such terminology to the church of Christ, how will the church succeed in the world? Where will we find safety and security? Where does it come from? And our brothers and sisters around the world have to ask that question every day. Will they hold fast to the word of Christ and patient endurance? Will they risk losing their property, perhaps their children? Will they risk imprisonment, maybe death? Will they deny Christ and have access to their house or to their children or to their lives? Which road leads to success? Which way is safest? And the Lord is saying the safest way is always faithfulness to me. Now, the American church, we ask this question differently. The question for us is, will we succeed if we proclaim a message that our culture wants to hear? If we capitulate and we, and we soften the message. One of the largest churches in this town is a Unitarian church. And their message is that we're all Okay. And that all spiritual roads lead to enlightenment and and to blessing and self-actualization. And they have some 1,400 members. And on Sundays, their sanctuary is packed. Is that what we want? Is that what success looks like? Is it even safe? Well, the Lord says that faithfulness is safety. Because he protects his faithful people. Now, that leads us to that question nagging in the back of some of our minds. What do we mean by safety and protection? What does Jesus mean, especially when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth? I wish we didn't have to deal with this question. I wish that it was obvious what he means, but for millions of Christians, the answer to this question is not obvious. And that's because somewhere early in the 19th century, a teacher by the name of John Nelson Darby invented a doctrine that we know now as the secret rapture of the church. And It was put forth in places like the Schofield Reference Bible and it became common parlance among many Christians and even down to today you have all sorts of teachings and, and book series like the Left Behind books teaching gullible Christians that our great hope in Jesus is to be airlifted, to be simply stolen away before anything gets really bad for Christ church. And they point to a verse like Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and they say, see, Jesus promises to protect his people He will keep them from the hour of tribulation. That means they won't have to face it. Christians will just be gone, will be taken. The rest of the world will be left and we'll all enjoy peace in Jesus while everything else burns and won't it be wonderful? But is that what Jesus is promising? Is that what he was promising to Smyrna? When he told them to be faithful in tribulation even unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Was it what Paul taught to Antioch and when he encouraged the souls of believers there and he told them that through many tribulations we must must enter the kingdom of God? Was that what Jesus prayed for his church? John chapter 17, verse 15, he prayed to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. John chapter 17, verse 15, by the way, is the only other place in the New Testament where those same two Greek words appear, keep them from. And so it must color and interpret the way that we're reading what Jesus is saying here. He never promises His church that they will be physically safe and secure if only they believe in Him. That is a watered-down version of the prosperity gospel. A distinctly Western, short-sighted, materialistic heresy. Now Jesus does say that he will protect his people. He will protect those who, who cling to him, who, who are faithful to him, but it's a spiritual protection. That he will protect their faith and their souls and the salvation of his spiritual, his faithful people. He promises that he will reveal at last that their hope in Jesus does not disappoint. And so when you read Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, I hope Isaiah 43 is in the back of your mind. That when my people go through the waters, they will not be overwhelmed. And when my people pass through the fire, they will not be consumed. Jesus promises faithful protection for his faithful people. He does it because his church is his memorial. And he will not part with it. Just like that little thing that you have somewhere in your house, and someone would come along and say, I'll offer you $100,000 for it. You would not sell it. it Maybe be worth 30 cents. But there's a significance far beyond what you can see. And Jesus says, there is a significance to my church such that I will be faithful to protect my faithful people because they belong to me. He is able to deliver his people from any threat, whether that threat comes from the synagogue of Satan or from the judgment of God. He is able to do for his church what he prayed for for Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has, has demanded that he have you so that he can sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may endure and that when you turn back, you will strengthen your brothers. That's the promise that he has. The Lord says the faith of my faithful people will always endure because it's proof even through hardship and affliction and trial. The continued faithfulness of his people is proof that Jesus is at work in them. That he works in them a peace that passes understanding and a faithfulness that defies tribulation. It's proof that Jesus Christ works in his people a hold on him that exceeds the strength of their own grip and so for the sake of his own name he promises to protect his faithful church now finally we come to witness and Jesus speaks to his church of witness and a last uh, this in a sense is the purpose of everything that we've been talking about why does the lord keep his church why does he make it permanent why does he protect it why does he guard his church as he does And we see that he does it so that his people would be a witness of his redemption. He keeps them through trial and persecution so that everyone else will be able to look on the church and see what God sees in the church. A trophy of redemption. This has always been the purpose of God's memorials the Ebenezers of the Old Testament that the Lord commanded that the people would set up. It was 12 stones taken from the riverbed of the Jordan at the place where they crossed. And and maybe they weren't significant, but he said, set them up so that in time when people pass by this place, they'll say, what's that all about? Let me tell you. Remember the time that the Lord was faithful. Remember the time the Lord kept his promises and delivered his people. That's what that memorial is about. That's God's purpose here at the table. It is a reminder. It is a memorial. It is more than a memorial, but it is not less than a memorial. And we come and remember God's love poured out for his people in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. His body broken and his blood spilled to fortify and to save and to keep his people, to cleanse them from every filthiness and iniquity. And it's a reminder, it's a witness that points beyond itself. It's a sign and it's a seal of something else. And so it is with the church. The church is meant to be a witness of God's redeeming power. Why else would the Lord give such undeserved mercy to the church? Why else would he care so much for a weak and a faltering people? Why else give them a hope that can't be shaken, an inheritance that cannot be revoked? Why all God's unmerited favor for his church unless he is making a name for himself? There's some more Isaiah for you. Isaiah chapter 55. Come, says the Lord. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come and buy without price, without money. And I'll give to you my covenant love, my steadfast love that I proclaimed to David and I'll send my word and I'll make it so and all of creation will rejoice at your coming. Why? Because the Lord will make a name for Himself, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Why does the Lord keep and preserve and protect His church? Why is it His permanent possession? But Because He's making a witness out of His church. That's what happens with the church in the world. Notice in verse 9, the Lord says that when I establish you in faithfulness, I will even make the liars to learn that I have loved you. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It's The promise of Isaiah all over again. The day is coming when the Lord will make Zion so glorious that the nations will stream to it. Water flowing uphill because of the attractiveness of his people. This is the promise of Zechariah that in that day, in that great day of the Lord, ten Gentiles will come and take hold of the robe of one Jew and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. And Now these promises are being fulfilled in the church, and almost in an ironic way, isn't it? There's a reversal here. The Lord is working in the church and he's saying, I will draw my people, the Jews, to come to the church. That was Paul's missionary strategy. Why did he go? Why did he proclaim the message to the Gentiles so that by any means necessary, he might incite some of his fellow Jews to jealousy that the Lord loves them and what about us and can't we take hold of this Messiah who loves his people? Why did he go and proclaim the message of salvation to the Gentiles? Because the message of salvation grasped by the Gentiles was a witness to the love of Christ so It would be attractive to the world around it. This is what the Lord has promised. That through suffering and affliction and tribulation and persecution, the faithfulness of the church will be an attractive witness to the love of God in the world. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means that the question that we're asking about the mission and the vision of the visible church is already answered. If the Lord is about witness in His church, if that is what He's after in His church. Faithful witness here as we gather. Faithful witness in the sight of the world so that others would be drawn in to gather and perfect the saints. If that is what the Lord is about, a faithful witness, then we ought to be a church that is about witness. We ought to be a church that is about audible evangelism outside these walls. And it is our shame, it is my shame, that there is so little programmatic intentional, church-wide, evangelistic outreach through our ministry. There are many of you who are proclaiming the gospel to your neighbors and your friends, and you are an example to us, and we are thankful for your labors in the Lord. But as a church, we ought to be about witness that others can see and they will come and say, I've heard that Jesus Christ has loved you It means that we ought to be about visible good works in our community. That our primary goal ought not to be to fly under the radar and to maintain and to protect our happiness and our comfort. We ought to seek God's favor to make us visible in the world for the sake of his name rather than his own because that is why Jesus preserves his church in the world. And it is why the Lord will keep his church For eternity. Take a look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. The Lord is saying, I'm going to make my people a witness in the presence of God. Listen to the way that Matthew Henry puts it. He says, The Lord will make his people pillars. Not pillars to support the temple because heaven needs no props such as these. But he will make them monuments of the free and powerful grace of God. Monuments that shall never be defaced or removed. You see, in Roman culture, if you were an important person, especially if you were an emperor, you would erect a monument to yourself everywhere that you could. On the street corners, in the public squares, especially in the temples, and and you would have that marble pillar stood up, not to support something, but so that other people would walk by and go, wow, I wonder what that's doing there. Let me read the inscription, and, and there is the name of the emperor. I erect this in my own honor and my own glory. And here is a list of all of my achievements, and aren't you impressed? And the Lord says, this is what I'll do for my people. I will put them in the temple of my God, and they will have my name. We've seen this before. The Lord says, I'll give you a new name. I will will change what you're about. I will change what you represent. I will give you a new identity, and your identity will be in me. And that is no small thing, to be renamed by Christ. In 2014, there was an Associated Press story about a young girl in India, one of the obscure parts of India who was granted a release by the province of which she was a a citizen, granted a release to change her name. Her name was Nakishi. And she changed it. I don't know what what the Hindi version was, but it, it, it meant now her new name was courageous, strong. And on the same day, there was another young girl. And her name was Nakishi. And she changed her name to be beautiful. And in fact, there were 283 other young girls in this province on the same day whose name was Nakishi. Because in that culture, when a young girl is born, sometimes the first thing out of the father's mouth is Nakishi, unwanted. And that becomes her name. And in one day, 285 girls in the same province were given the opportunity. What would you like to be named? How do you want to be known? How do you want to be represented in the world? And they got to pick their own name, but the Lord says, I have a name for you that is better than strong. I have a name for you that is better than courageous. I have a name for you that is better than beautiful or wonderful or tiny or small or whatever you might want to be known as. My name for you is redeemed, beloved, I will stand you in the presence of my God forever, and you will bear that name as a witness to the power of my cross. This is what the Lord is telling his church in time and in eternity. He gives a permanent place to his people, he protects them, he makes them a witness so that all the world, so that the Lord himself and all his angels will look upon these pillars standing in the presence of the Lord and say, these belong to the Lamb, who has ransomed them and redeemed them, who has loved them and made them his own. This is the destiny of Christ's church, to be witnesses, monuments, memorials, to make a name for the Lord on the earth and in eternity. And these are the promises the Lord makes to his faithful church. He promises that his true church has a permanent place in his kingdom. And she will be protected by his power. And she will stand as a witness forever to magnify the glory of God in the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ has made the church his memorial. Ought we not to do the same? Please pray with me. Gracious Lord and God, you have called your people beloved. You have established us by faith in Jesus Christ in an inheritance that cannot be taken away, in a faith that will not disappoint, and you have promised us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would comfort us by your grace. Challenge us by your desire for your church that we should be witnesses where we are, that others would be able to see and hear that we are the beloved of the Lord, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your great power and your love for us, because of the glory of the cross of Christ, where justice and mercy meet. Help us, O Lord. Help your church to cling to you in faithfulness. Make us your faithful people. Make us your witnesses in the world so that we will be your witnesses to your glory in eternity.